Welcome back. It's Jokerman Podcast. I'm Evan. I'm Ian. And joining us today, Aaron Olson. In person. It's Aaron Olson and Evan we go. together in one room. True. The second member of legendary rock group Mountain Brews to appear on Jokerman Podcast. It's a strong choice, my friend, for you to show up with a head to lend. Yeah, hopefully you're going to get all of them we're gonna collect, collect the whole set by the end of this you guys i mean you guys have what like eight people when when we did the show in november you had like eight people on stage right yeah there was a lot probably seven <laughs> maybe eight but aaron's not just in mountain brews you're in about every single band that is operating in east los angeles and the environs surrounding it it's uh, it seems i yeah i am a a busy guy um high demand in high demand um yeah i play in richard pictures as well which mountain brews is a spinoff of of a subsidiary a subsidiary yeah um and yeah i have a band called la takedown i play uh in all kinds of things i have a thing called the musical tracing ensemble that just put out a tape today oh congratulations Uh, congrats hey thanks happy uh tape putting out thanks um in, in sad and somber news today, uh, I just heard uh, the passing of um, Mark Stewart of the pop group. Uh, very uh, influential and great musician. One of those people who, I think that band, their first album, Why, um, I think he was like 20 or like 19 when it came out. And it's one of those things that makes you feel so bad to know that, to hear it, because it's so good. And it was a huge influence on uh, me and, and Matt uh, when we were making music in high school and to this very day. So rest in peace, Mark Stewart. Speaking of dying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perfect. How about some words about it? Nailed it. Uh, yeah. We are here today to talk about John Cale, Brian Eno a little bit. And Dylan Thomas, and and the Falklands War, and the, and Falk, the Falklands yeah, and War. Argentina, and the United Kingdom, and Margaret Thatcher, and Carmen Miranda. That's right. We're closing out the eighties. This is it. This we're closing out the eighties. Where it's been long, and what we've been doing this since like the first week of January. We've been in the, been in, mired in the eighties. Well, not mired. We've been luxuriating in the eighties. I should say with Lou and John. This is it. I'm glad to see the finish line, uh, and then uh, we've got a whole new chapter beginning. Uh, shortly but uh yeah john's back after four years off post artificial intelligence before we uh, talk about it though i mean aaron you are 
a a a major head uh, of John's, uh, Major John Head. Uh, can you just uh, sort of tell the folks out there a little bit about your experience with them and where you're coming at it from? Yeah, um, I am a I'm a kale head for sure. <laughs> um, also a Lou fan. I'm not as much a Lou head, but big fan. Um, yeah, I uh, got into kale deeply in college. You know almost 20 years ago, I guess, um, in San Francisco and, uh, uh, you know, started with Paris 1919 probably and like vintage violence and slow dazzle. I remember having those records in college as you do and as you do as one does. And, uh, simultaneously though, I was studying classical music at San Francisco state and, uh, what got me into the program or what made me decide like, Oh, I should study this is, was my love of minimalism. And, uh, through that I had dis- discovered like, you know, the theater of eternal music type stuff, mm-hmm. which led me to John Cale. I was like simultaneously getting into Cale through his like pop albums. And it all kind of coalesced at that time in college. And I got really into his drone stuff that was coming out on table of elements label like uh, i don't know if you guys no, are talking about I, those I, we haven't it. yet but we should probably do it at some point that big set which i mean we have had like standing plans to yes. for me to lug over and listen to it's in this big black wooden box uh shouts out to eric dinas for gifting that it was like uh just languishing at the secretly canadian offices of, i guess That's and amazing. uh my guardian angel eric knew that um I deserve it. Deserve it. And by extension, you. Uh, but really, I just you want to see the thing. You're, yeah. I just, I just I've never seen see. one. I mean, that's like, yeah, pretty like holy grail <laughs> thing for someone like myself. <laughs> I, ha- I, ha- I mean, I bought those CDs. Like, the, separately, this thing is, you know? the, the, it's so uh, like extensive and also so hard to get into because the labels don't say anything i don't think <laughs> i think that's the way that's the way to listen to that kind of stuff just like put it on and whatever you get that's what you got anyway right. your uh intro to john kale i think is rare and uh excellent just in terms of like provenance because most people get into John Cale in a very adulterated fashion. They're like, oh, I heard uh, a song off of Fear come up in my Spotify recommended uh, uh, shuffle of the day, or whatever they call it. Yeah. Well, yeah Spotify I'm, uh, breakfast hash. But you were like actually academically interested in the, the same thing that John was, and then you would also found out he did rock and roll. Yes. That, and yeah, that kind of like coincided. Yeah, like my love of like the Beach Boys or whatever, like kind of was happening at the same time. And I got, yeah, I came into Kale through two avenues kind of simultaneously. And Mr. Then, Wilson. Yeah, oh yeah. There you go. Full circle there. I believe you, Mr. Wilson. I believe you anyway. But I also like wrote about Kale and the Velvets in a couple papers, including my thesis paper um, for college. My thesis was about minimalism's influence on pop music. No better uh, subject to focus something like that on than, than old John. 
Yeah, he was definitely a part of that paper, among other things. But yeah, were you? Uh, so was it John specifically that you got into first, or did you get like? For me, I know like I started with the Velvets, and then I realized like, oh, there's Lou Reed and there's John Cale, and they've got a whole other things after the Velvets. Did, did you? Was that similar for you, or were you just right yeah. into John right off the bat? Kind of. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I I think I had only known the uh with nico album Mm. like at the end of high school and then uh i got more into them as as i was getting more into the kale drone theater of eternal music stuff Mm. so yeah and also i mean i was a big eno fan in like high school and going into college and so I, I have a memory of, I bought the Kale and, you know, and Kale tape from Lou's Records in Encinitas. And uh, I put it, I put it in, in my car because I was, I, I was coming at that from, Eno, like really loving before and after science. And uh, I remember putting the tape in, like getting through maybe 20 seconds of a song and like being angered at the sounds I was hearing and <laughs> you're and talking ejecting the, you're wrong way up, but just to get, wrong way up. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I d- is now one of my favorite albums, but I, I ejected it and threw it out the window of my car. <laughs> this was like in 2000. What, what were you so angry about? It was just these, these, uh, musical palettes uh-huh. age, age over time. Right. And we grow more comfortable with them. And like, in like 2001 or two or whenever that was, or yeah, probably 2002, like chorusy guitar and like gated snare drum. Sure. That stuff just w- was, we weren't ready for that to, or a lot of people, including myself, were not ready for that to come back yet. You're right. not ready for this yet, but your kids exactly. are going to love it. I guess that would be like right now us trying to listen to a record from like 2011, which. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was a little too close. I was too, also having like been consuming a lot of music at that in the early 90s as a little kid. Mm-hmm. It was just too close to the early 90s for that. That makes sense. To land for me. But now I love that album. I mean, it's, I think it's gorgeous. Beautiful album. Can't wait to talk about it. But this is the first, uh, you know kale it's not well well no but well it's but like you know it, it's the first full album that i think the two of them embarked upon together as in more the, in yeah, this the first, way the full the full thing uh you know uh, from from soup to nuts the two of them working together instead of you know just you know doing uh instrumentation and stuff it's yeah it's less in a, it's not a band context that's the the important thing like that yeah. this is uh unique in that previously when you know was involved it was like whoever was in the room and you know was was kind of acting producer engineer um guru guy as he's credited on the fear credits Eno is responsible for just Eno. yeah you know, you know. and he actually is just Enoing it up he's playing Eno on this but I mean, in a unique way um what is he even doing on this album really uh consulting <laughs> yeah that's what it seems like <laughs> his production like Eno Eno as the producer of an orchestra is like kind of neither here nor there. Like it, you're not get. There's nothing you know about an orchestra, right? Yeah, you, he just like can't like the, what he does 
doesn't really like apply to music from an orchestra, you know? Yes. Like an orchestra sounds like an orchestra. Exactly. Well, it, you would think that, but I think in fact, you know, is so great at being Eno for the reason that it, he can kind of sprinkle fairy dust on things. He, he doesn't have a specialty. He really just has kind of principles. And I think that's what his role was here. In the documentary of the making of this album, which is, uh, in some ways, you know, Eno comes across, generally he comes across like terribly. <laughs> which is backed up by John in the book. <laughs> He didn't want to be there. He didn't want to be filmed. And I mean, the sympathetic read is just that, like, he has his creative process and he tried to articulate, like, when you film me, I'm going to be acting differently. And because I'm self conscious of being filmed, there's a, a generous read of that, which is that, like, okay, you know, really wanted to be creatively nimble and, like, maybe the decisions he feared like the way the flow of the process might be interrupted or kind of subverted changed yeah. by being not totally at ease like he is in I, the studio i which, think he explains it pretty well in the like first five minutes of that documentary yeah but he is kind of pissed while he's, he's well a yeah I, I, that scene is very uncomfortable I think. what happens with a camera around is that i censor my own behavior and i censor exactly the parts of it that are likely to to lead to something interesting. Where yeah. except hands, you said I could film hands and feet. Yeah, no, I'm I'm quite happy with hands and feet. Uh, they okay. don't get self-conscious. Yeah, <laughs> incognito hands. <laughs> did, yeah. Yeah, did you watch? Have you see, watched that? I've not seen the doc. I'm going to try right. to watch it, but Evan was uh, keeping me updated on some of it. It, it appeared that there's also uh, instances of John just sort of going through a struggle session and just being lambasted <laughs> the, for the end. Oh, that's the end. Okay. <laughs> well, at the uh, very end, they have him sit down on a hillside oh watching a small television of uh, just these interviews with people in. Uh, where they are in, in somewhere in Europe, I in, don't know. Or the, I think it's when after he plays at the Paradiso in Amsterdam. Yeah, and uh, it's just some pretty f fair but harsh criticisms. I don't by, think it's that fair. Uh, harsh but uh, <laughs> arguably unfair criticism. <laughs> Kale takes them in stride, but anyway, it's just insane <laughs> to see him sitting there like with a furrowed brow, watching a tiny TV of people just being like. He's repeating himself on top of a beautiful like Welsh mountain. But then also he like you can see the hurt yeah. kind of in his face. And this is how the whole documentary ends. He sees this footage on top of this beautiful Welsh mountain. He kind of like processes it. He goes like, well, yeah, that's fair. fair. Yeah. And then he's like, well, I got to get I got to get back now. And he like just. They just show him like walking <laughs> down this like yeah, mountain he, by himself. Yeah, he's actually just kind of jumping, like hopping yeah, down, kind of running, rambling down, and uh, wearing jeans. And his mom is in it for a long period of time, right? I'm I'm basing this off of reading the book. I guess their home in Garnet. It seemed like he went back there to um, sell the house. Yeah, I think he had to sell the house and do it sort of surreptitiously. Like she couldn't know that she was signing this paper to sell away the home that he grew up in and that she her parents built and um he does say something in in the book though about how you know his wife Risa, Risa yeah she was uh, disturbed by the inclusion of this section but um 
John's explanation of it and actually watching it um, is kind of a different matter because he says basically he wanted to make this undignified situation a little bit more dignified by just sort of presenting it and having giving her a chance to just be herself. And it seems that he was happy to have this kind of memento of his mother putting on this little show of being a naive old lady and he's he kind of sees through it and um so it's not so it's not all doom and gloom but there's a somberness to that whole section yeah. for sure it's, it just seems like a very strange movie like i mean i i said this is the one who hasn't seen it the movie like doesn't it's not a great movie. It's like, it's, why does it exist? <laughs> it, 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 like. almost, it It's a little, it's, do you remember like maybe 10 years ago where every documentary all of a sudden was like a documentary that became about being a documentary? Sure, sure. Like where it's like, and then they found out that we were doing the thing and now the thing's about us making the thing. It felt, it feels like that, like but that. it's, but it's before that was such a thing maybe, or it just doesn't work. And it's like not interesting. Like the whole we can't film Brian Eno thing is just annoying. <laughs> Brian Eno's explaining that why he doesn't want to be filmed in the beginning and the guy's the director's standing on his head or whatever. The guy's doing a handstand. Eno's like kind of laughing and saying, like, this is why I can't we I can't be filmed. And it's just so uncomfortable because he's like, <laughs> this is why I can't do this because of things like this we've been filming for about 10 days now and you fought us every step of the way so i'd like to know why you didn't want to make this film in the first place oh am i on there yeah oh jolly good well <laughs> i'm here to explain my um snobbishness about being filmed <laughs> while i'm working and here you have the reason for it it's this kind of behavior that you don't want going on in a recording studio when you're trying to make a record. <laughs> um, it does rather divide your attention, you know. It's uncomfortable. And yet there are some really good moments scattered through oh, of yeah. them making the thing and Later, actually yeah. really being uh, involved. And some of the best parts are seeing the way that they arrange it and do the, the vocal, like... Yeah, that's Eno really... has this really amazing section where he's like, I mean, it's Eno and Kale, where you see Eno in real time, like, kind of figuring out the phrasing uh, of these lines, and it's really amazing because yeah. there, it's like, oh, that, yeah, that's that's how it goes. Like suddenly, he just has the perfect way to put these poet, this poetry to music, mm. and we haven't talked about yet the kind of central figure yeah, what the record of actually is the piece yeah. yeah so the piece itself uh i feel like it's a piece it, rather it's a than suite. a record yeah it's a suite with some extra songs uh words for the dying it was initially conceived of by kale as uh, an opera about welsh poet dylan thomas uh one of the most famous poets of all time kind of the first superstar poet of one of like superstar. Yeah, he was like well known in the same way that like any kind of public uh, sure. intellectual or figure is. Like he toured. He was like on tour, and people would go up to him and like have him sign stuff. And uh, in that way, it was a kind of he was a phenomenon. And I I can't help but think about how he's a extremely self destructive artistic young welsh man who winds up dying in new york city 
um, uh, allegedly due to his extreme alcohol abuse. But um, there's some debate about how he actually, if he, there was some other weird factors in his death. Um, anyway, it seems like something that John Cale would be interested in, and he was. The actual end product, though, doesn't take the form of this opera. It's something a bit more abstract. And I maybe speak for all of us when I say it's not an immediately obvious uh, read, like to figure out what's, what's happening and how it's structured. Full disclosure, I've never, I've never <laughs> sat down with these lyrics and like thought about how they relate to the Falklands War. Okay, yeah, anything. that's the other thing. <laughs> so, like, yeah, so it's called Words for the Dying. The first, whatever, five, six, seven songs are part of the Falklands suite uh, as, as it's billed, and then there's a couple extra tracks there at the end. Uh, I've kind of come to the conclusion that, like, there actually is not that much relationship between the Falklands War and what's going on here. Um, there's a, there's, I have this on cassette, which is, I think, a very funny medium to own this record on uh and john writes about it in june 1989 the falklands war took place in 82 and we'll touch on that in a second but john writes uh all he says is while the argentine flag was being raised on south georgia that's an island down there uh i was feverishly embarking on a comprehensive setting of the collected poems of dylan thomas each night i would sit with alan lanier in his apartment in new york city thrashing from one poem to another with the tape running by the end of the war, and the Falklands War took place over the course of like two or three months, it was like over and done with within, uh, you know, just a few weeks in 82. Uh, by the end of the war, I had arrived at Lie Still, Sleep Becalmed, and it seemed that of the nine poems done in all, there were four that felt all of a piece. The interludes came later around the time of the preparation of the premiere in Amsterdam's Paradiso on November 14th and 15th, 1987. I honestly just literally think that like, he was working on this Dylan Thomas shit as the Falklands War was taking place, and like they just made this kind of mental connection in his mind, and that like that's the extent of the relationship between this music, these poems, and you know the Falklands suite. You know this kind of very conceptual, big picture historical event that it is tied to. But that's also such a quintessentially John Cale thing to do, as we talked about in several on several occasions, like songs like. Had a gabbler, uh, or Captain Hook, or even that live version of Waiting for the Man, where he suddenly is talking about uh, coffee beans and colonialism. There's this urge that he has to get into not not to like get political, but to get like metaphysical, like about about politics, or to like really make politics into something that are fair game for metaphorical conjecture from song to song or within a song. Mm. One of the things about John Cale that has absolutely not helped him to become a mainstream <laughs> artist, because uh, we're sitting here and puzzling with uh, just how that fits. Um, and I think we really know a lot about John Cale's music and more than the average bear. Yeah, I I I think yeah, Ian. I agree that it's like I think yeah he was working on this setting of these poems at that time, and yeah they probably don't have anything literally to do with it. But I think it's personal 
to him like and the oh, music he was co- was coming up with was is like kind of heavy at times though some of it's extremely like <laughs> playful sounding but um yeah i think it's more of like yeah this is his like personal like this is where i was when whatever uh the world trade center went down type thing totally you know? yeah and, and i think for us it's or for me at least it's um it's just like i i have needed to like rein myself in approaching this um uh from this like you know connection uh, uh between the music and the politics uh because we have literally 24 hours ago we were talking new york um you know lou's new york uh which is just like as i described it on that episode lou is msnbc brained uh and like so dialed into like very specific political controversies of the day with very particular lou reed type takes on them and that is not at all what john is doing here uh despite the seeming you know kind of surface level connection yeah i mean they both are doing something kind of like that though like again they're kind of in a similar, uh, John is not referencing for, specific like people or no, but the, the fact this. that they're making a, a record that is about world events at all. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it, absolutely, and that's what's so again, like we've talked, you know, from the very beginning of this whole show of the ways that Lou and John seem to react and reflect, like react against one another and reflect one another at many times throughout their careers. Here again, like they're doing the same kind of thing, right? Making a quote unquote political record but approaching it from, like, complete opposite directions and the way that it's actually put across. Kale is so much more obtuse and uh, impressionistic in his lyrics, I think. Definitely. And Lou Reed is completely literal. <laughs> like, he's, like, the, one of the most literal um, lyricists. Often. Well, sure, on, yeah. On often, that yes. album in particular, though, you have uh, Last Great American Whale and, yes. most, and Dime Store Mystery, which is really the one that, to me, feels the most, I mean, even, I think, objectively is kind of the most elusive of the, that collection. And it seems like uh, that's Lou's version of getting towards some of that um, shadowy area that, that John kind of just dwells in yeah. naturally. I mean, but Lou's... Lou's bread and butter, I think, directly, yes. is like looking around him, seeing what's there and saying it. No question. And I mean, and having an, an, an interesting take on it. Totally. <laughs> but, and yeah, John, I feel like lyrics for John generally, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he has admitted this or not that it's something to be ashamed of, but come second. Mm-hmm. I think he's not a lyrics forward. Um, musician i disagree oh interesting i well, I, I think it, uh, I, I, i'm somewhere in between uh, i'm always playing peacemaker but uh i mean I, I i totally agree that like john as a lyricist is not nearly as like slice of life and direct and um and uh, as interested in just like relating the experience of being john kale uh through his music the way that lou is with something like um you know walk on the wild side very easily halloween parade like we just talked about yesterday um you know i I think there are instances where john's a little more focused on the lyrics but you know we have talked a lot about these type of you know john kale type of songs you know more than i know um being a great example of like he's he is that that is john kale relating the experience of being john kale i think but it's very unclear to the listener like what exactly he is kind of talking about you know it's very much left up uh open to interpretation the way that lou songs most lou songs are not well yeah, I mean, that's you see the connection, frankly, 
yeah, to Dylan Thomas there because Dylan Thomas was, you know, a, I think really a, a popular poet who, in his poems that have become iconic, there is a total ambiguity um, to most of it and all of it sometimes. And yet they kind of have these like iconic phrases that seem to catch the imagination of like everyone. Um, rage against the dying of the light or do not go gentle into that good night or whatever it is. Um, those kinds of things pop up in, I think, John's approach of like shooting for something oh, yeah. that hopefully just strikes an emotional chord, even though it doesn't do it by way Absolutely. of literal word, like yeah. a literal approach. And I don't, I'm not saying John Cale is a bad lyricist. I think he's a good lyricist. Sure. I just think that John Cale would say, I'm a composer, yeah, a musician. Yeah. Whereas Lou Reed would say, I'm a musician and poet. A writer. Right. A writer, yeah. A writer. Or something. Yeah. But I don't think John Cale would ever consider himself to be a poet or writer of, by any means. Uh, yeah, I think that he has said, with regard to this album in What's Welsh for Zen, he says something like, yeah, I was... I've got, I've got try, it right you've here. You've got the quote there. And this relates exactly to what you said, Aaron. Uh, John says, literally in his own words, I wanted to leave rock and roll, get away from that world of symbols and outwardliness. I've no business being in rock and roll. I've said it over and over again that I'm a classical composer disheveling my musical personality by dabbling in rock and roll. This frustration in not getting down and doing classical music was showing in the records. I don't fancy being remembered as the author of a series of records that were put out as rock and roll records when, in fact, they had nothing to do with rock and roll. I'm not a rock and roll musician. I want to write a symphony, get together with some college orchestras, and perform so I would get as close to Mozart's position as possible. Says the guy who wrote dirty-ass rock and roll. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it doth protest too much. <laughs> I think a thing with John Cale and a lot of composers or musicians, even just by any means, is there. I mean, you can't take their word for anything. <laughs> yeah. Like, there, it's always changing. Their perspective on themselves is always changing. And if my, I think I understand the timeline correctly. I've never read that book because it's kind of expensive and I've just never pulled the trigger We've on got, buying hey, it. I've got the PDF. I'll email it to you. Yeah, uh, please. Um, but I think does this not coincide with him uh, kicking alcoholism and being getting yeah. clean and like maybe he's like associates being a rock and roll person with like those days with, of partying with the darkest days of his life yeah exactly yeah, yeah this is what <laughs> which were also the most productive days of his life yeah. but well, that's yeah. uh, often how it goes the, yeah the, this whole section in the book is him talking about uh, his daughter Eden being born in 85 um and that being really kind of the main motivator to him uh to to finally get clean and kick shit he runs into Lou at this party at the Whitney for Bob actually uh, and Lou is there with Sylvia and Lou is kind of cleaned up and, you know, kind of put together. And John is still kind of like, you know, still still a little on edge. Uh, and that is a really kind of uh, uh, tense uh, interaction between the two of them, the way that John describes it. And that also kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of kicks him in the ass. Um, and then he just wants to be around, you know, around his daughter and, and like not traveling, not touring. And so this period of time, this is really why he goes from 85 to 89 you know, 85 being artificial intelligence. This is the next record he puts out four years later. 
Um, and, uh, I, you know, in that, in that period, he was kind of like resetting his entire life as a father, exactly. as an artist, you know, kind of as a healthy human being. Playing a lot of squash, which yes. we also get, we get a squash scene in this documentary. Oh, shit. Okay. I gotta watch exciting. this. <laughs> yeah. Just watch the thing. It's actually like, there's a version on YouTube that I had watched. It cuts off the last 15 minutes, but the last 15 minutes were kind of the best I, 15 the best. minutes of yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> Um, that party that you just referenced, which to be clear, a party for Bob Dylan, for Bob Dylan at the Whitney in 1985, Empire Burlesque ass Bob wow. Dylan <laughs> and Lou Reed was there and, and David Byrne and the way that he describes it, um, he was really, um, deeply hurt and made to feel a fool by basically being kind of like almost asked like can you get out of the way like while they were basically trying to take photos with bob and david byrne and and lou and he had this kind of really shitty experience of i don't don't, nobody recognizes me here nobody cares about what i was doing this whole time so that that quote about i'm a i'm a classical composer i i don't know why (laughs) i don't want to be remembered as a rock guy anyway it's it's kind of sour grapes and understandably so because like it seems like he's soldiered on so long and dedicatedly through his career doing music doing rock music or not um and not being recognized for it by a, a wide audience and i think that's like this acute moment where Sometimes it really does get to him and that uh, it wouldn't, it would get to anyone. Sure. He's never let it get too deep to him to, to actually stop making music altogether. Right. Thankfully. And I think that's why like the John Eno relationship like kind of works in a way that the John Lou relationship doesn't like, you know, as a creative collaboration because John gets to be kind of the Lou to Eno's John in that relationship, you know? Like, Eno is, like, a producer. He's a big name, obviously, but he's, like, he's not a songwriter necessarily. Certainly by this point, obviously, it's been, you know, a decade plus since he put out any sort of pop songwriting uh, in the late 80s. Uh, He's sort of a behind-the-scenes, behind-the-camera, you know, creative, you know, force consultant, as you put it, Evan. But John gets to kind of be the, you know, the face to the whole thing versus with Lou it is it is a collaboration uh, you know definitely but Lou is very much kind of like the face the voice and John does seem to kind of uh um have some trouble uh reckoning with that This episode of Jokerman podcast is presented by DistroKid over a million artists rely on DistroKid to distribute their music and get it into all of the places it needs to go. Your Spotify's, your Apple Music's, your YouTube's, your TikTok's, your titles, your Instagram's, and any other streaming service of note. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100%, that's right, 100, all of them, folks, of their royalties and earnings. DistroKid comes with tons of great features, including Mixia, which allows DistroKid users to put the finishing touches on their tracks in just minutes, getting a customizable and polished end result that anyone can feel confident in before sharing it with the world. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store to download it today. (laughs) 
Yeah, there's this tension of was it John's idea to do the documentary and and then Eno doesn't want to do it, but he's willing to help him creatively. And it, it does kind of paint this sort of odd, imbalanced relationship of like what exactly Eno thinks his role is and, 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 and it reminds you of the Lou and John collaboration and in like the ways that these things just that's how any collaboration is. There's these kind of like seesawing ideas and uh, a give and take. It get, yeah, a give and take that sometimes can't work out. Eno as a producer is such a mythical thing. And to see him actually just doing something that any producer would do is like, no, you have to start, you have to say about like on mm-hmm. the second beat or something, you know, um, is, yeah, it's really special to see that. And it's also interesting to see Kale listen to him and take instruction from him willingly and like not be a sourpuss about it or whatever. Like, but it's also weird because Kale has performed this already live at this point mm-hmm. a couple times, I think. So I don't understand why he doesn't know what the vocal <laughs> phrasing is. I think when it's a matter of putting it down for good with the whole orchestra behind you, it's, um, you know, it's really high pressure. And, and I think that, Actually, you know, you know, he's clearly able to polish it and make it work as well as it does. John has another line about Eno in the book. Uh, he said, yeah, I gave a performance of the poems. A piece might have died there and then it forced my hand. I went to work immediately. My having a tape of the recording was an important factor in the future of the piece. I sent a copy to Brian Eno, who had by now established the Opal label via Warner Brothers. And the enthusiasm Brian showed for the piece was immediate and very gratifying that was where we established the way our partnership was working. He was very, you know, was very adept at taking what was there and altering it slightly and making a terrific difference. Yeah. Yeah. That, that adds up. And also at the end of the doc, they, uh, I assume that Kale's talking about this album. They don't explicitly say, but they cut back and forth between Eno and Kale reflecting on the finished product. And Kale sounds kind of disappointed, right? He's like, he's like, oh, it didn't really like, uh, it didn't really work. I think what he's, it's funny because he's saying like in so many words without saying it, that he misses the immediacy of a rock and roll (laughs) album (laughs) experience where he's like, you know, I kind of realized I wasn't the one who was going to change anything because it's already been figured out. And there's a certain amount of disappointment because it doesn't seem that the piece is anything more than what it was originally. That is, I've not been able to make any heroic statement of the music, but it was all there. And at, uh, as such, I can't play a larger-than-life role in the recording of it. What might you do yet? Well, I'm going to leave. Let me know when you're, when you're done. Mm. And it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, coaching him to do the singing, uh, the vocalizing in, in, a, in a way that feels exciting to him because he sounds a little like a little depressed before they track the vocals um for that reason yeah he's not like going into the booth like stoked (laughs) no it's which is so weird to see john kale not go into a record soul ablaze like screaming at uh, he does that at least twice on like every album and he does not even You're you're not getting any screams on this one doesn't scream once no. No sicko mo, no no cutting off chickens' heads in the studio. John thinks it's really easy. I think it's very hard. 
to make it not sound flippant. Ah, I see where you're coming from. Flippancy is the curse of the 20th century. The wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because there was a... Oh. It seems to me you always get off on the wrong foot in every verse by starting your first line too soon. Um, Are any of the other verses all right? I don't think so, no. no. I think, well, in fact, Good Men the Last Way, that was good on this one. Um, but the really difficult one, actually, is that... And you, my father... It should be... And you, my father, there on the side. That's right, that's what I want to hear. Oh. Our auntie. The wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because there was it for... Oh, bugger. <laughs> I think it's a great suite. I do think the John Cale vocals carry quite a bit in it. Um, like if this, if this, if John Cale had put this out as an instrumental suite, mm. I think it would be even less remembered. Mm. Obviously, sure. Um, but I do, I do like the music. I think it's a pretty engaging overall piece of music, and there's interesting textures that they create with um, the instrumentation. I haven't like sat down and like. <laughs> study the chord progressions or anything and like the voice leading but um yeah i mean i think it's a valid piece of neoclassical music with like some post-minimalist um leanings i think that there's just a thrill inherent in hearing john kale and knowing that brian eno and john kale are the ones bringing this to you this um elegant and restrained classical piece basically with their sensibilities and that is more interesting just to know than maybe the music would be to somebody who's a fan of either of them and didn't know that they made it like Mm. and yet there's some really stirring passages in it totally just musically yeah yeah i absolutely Uh, it's actually it's a little uh, more sorry, the th- fragments version. I'm sorry. It's actually there's, there's three. There's three. It stops. It does. I just have a tendency to walk back no, down. I was just being Brian Eno. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a good job, and you were right. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rage at the close of day Rage at the dying of the That would be interesting. I'd love to hear what some, you know, stuffy classical reviewer thinks of this. Right. I wouldn't really love to hear what they think of it. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll take it with a grain of salt, but like it's, I I mean, I don't think there's much, I don't think it's like a very impeachable piece. Like it's, 
it's a strong piece of music of orchestral music well our favorite review source uh all music reviews uh-huh. gave it uh i think two and a half stars out of Worthless. five Ouch. and uh they said that the <laughs> they said that the arrangements were busier than an irish butcher on a friday <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous really? line that's what they said that is what they said yeah i couldn't make that up <laughs> <laughs> well okay the introduction we that's there's not much to say you know it's it's kind of it's it would normally serve a suite like this as an overture which is like a statement of the themes basically Hmm. it's kind of like a thesis paper where you have to like say what you're trying to prove and then like you know give a little introduction to it that's the the purpose of an overture but it's not called overture it's called introduction and yeah it's a strange choice i think to start with that sure it's just more of a fanfare just announcing the arrival of the orchestra Right, there aren't melodies or or yeah, just, um, whatever that they're going to return to later on in the yeah, piece, really. right? I don't think so. I mean, there might be snippets, but it's, yeah, I haven't picked up on it. But then we get into the real meat and potatoes. Oh, yeah. We could jump right in, right after that. It's great. Yeah. There was a savior interlude one is the beginning of, I guess, the the suite proper. And it is uh, really pretty. (laughs) That harp. (laughs) It's a pretty sound. Um, For someone who's not like a classical music uh, head, I think that it's it's kind of novel to hear any of this. This whole record to me was kind of like a nice introduction to it. It's like training wheels of listening to uh neoclassical music because it's sort of my got my favorite guy is there and um my other and his his best friend it's very list yeah it's very listenable to me yeah i mean it's it yeah as someone else who you know does not really uh uh spend too much time listening to uh anything with more than six uh uh musicians on it um It's uh, it's a pretty like smooth you know kind of uh, engaging kind of listen. I almost think of it as like like a like smile or something. You know the the, hmm. the way that like it, it's this big long interconnected piece. Uh, obviously, that's done in a very different way. But um, I kind of flex my uh, it, 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 I flex the same muscle listening to that as I do to this. Well, so so is he. I mean, the man wrote. Mr. Wilson, we talked about it already. We haven't even gone through the episode without talking about Brian Wilson and <laughs> and uh, John Cale. And I think that there is a connection there. Uh, uh, Wilson, Brian Wilson has done a whole Gershwin album. He's done yeah. uh, all kinds of things. That are, and, and Smile itself is like a suite. Uh, it, it's a, a symphony. There is a, a real connection there. And I think this is just on the further end of the spectrum of, of the, the classical, but by nature of it being John Cale, it's connected to everything that's come before. Um, yeah, sure. 
for folks like us who love rock songs. That's right. Hey, I, just to be clear, I love rock songs too. Thank God. I'm not a classical head. <laughs> folks like us. There's a trouble with the classicists. <laughs> I just studied it in school because you can't study rock music. Um, uh, but what I mean, I'm curious. What What did you guys think of uh, uh, the Academy in Peril? Oh well, we talked about it forever ago, but I mean, like, did we that liked do it. anything for okay? I think that it actually was easier to talk about because the Academy in Peril comes at neoclassicism with a bit more of a fuck you attitude that Absolutely. is so much more in line with what we were coming to expect um, and what would be right to expect from John Cale in the earlier part of his career. And here, talking, even thinking about that is really funny because it seems like he is who he was talking about suddenly like flip the script yeah exactly this is the opposite in some ways yeah because he, you know, before he's like i'm gonna do this record but it's all a fucking joke and now he's like i'm just i'm actually doing the record yes. this album is really like he's he's been deep undercover so long in in rock and roll that he's like forgotten how to live outside of it like he's in been in like a bloodthirsty biker gang dancing undercover <laughs> there you go dancing undercover what a great song. Wow, what a deep cut. Come back for the Walking on Locust episode, Aaron. <laughs> you, uh, you know, I was talking about being comfortable with certain palettes. That one, I, ha- I haven't gotten comfortable with that palette oh. yet. But I, I trust that I will. Maybe that by the time you guys get... My relationship with John Cale has been ongoing since the early 2000s, where I basically am aware of everything. He's, I've like, I'll listen to every new thing he puts out. And I'll try, it took me a long time to get to like angry kale, like to mm-hmm. accept it. Cause I loved, I loved like beautiful kale. <laughs> like, like sabotage. Exactly. But I came around and sure. like, it's, it's a relationship that's like, I keep coming back and a new door opens every time. Well, it seems like John Kale is going through the same thing. Yes. Uh, and it's when he talks about, I'm not a rock musician. I don't know why anyone thought that <laughs> and then you just think about, about like him screaming is in, 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 in whatever uh there's also just the knowledge we have now of like well since that point of when he said that he has absolutely gone back to rock music and done stuff that's not so he just finds a way to reconcile it with this project of like i'm gonna go and do this classic neoclassical piece and he could do it, but it was a struggle to kind of get back into that uh, zone. Um, and if not a struggle, like for his skill level, which, you know, probably not, a struggle just for his own identity and who he was doing that. And mm-hmm. um, then at the very end, when he was sitting there watching those uh, critiques of his recent performances, um, which are kind of saying like, you know, this stuff doesn't have anything in common with what I used to love about seeing John Cale. He seems genuinely to take it in and go like, you know, yeah. That doesn't seem like it should come as a surprise to him though. Like that, that seems to be the whole, por- the whole point of what he's doing. I think the critiques were more that I think they saw him do a solo set of his old material and they're like, he's just, he's an, he's like a, 
a novelty act or like a nostalgia act. His mind was probably elsewhere trying to lean into what he would be doing with words for the dying. And, uh, he had, yeah, but he was, he was in neither, he was not committed to that mode. Um, and I think it takes this experience to kind of break through and have him realize maybe for himself, even just that he can do this. And he can be a rock musician, and it's not like he forgot how to do either. Um, he can actually do both. And he ends it by saying that maybe I, they have a point about kind of re- reappraising where I'm at so I can do it for another 20 years. Right. And that's the last thing he says in the documentary sure. before ambling off. <laughs> down, down, down the, the mountain, mountain. <laughs> back to garnet i do i do think this album is a success though musically i think i, it's, I think yeah. it's a great album and especially uh, with uh in contrast to the academy in peril which i do really like i think that the music on this is much more is is better <laughs> yeah i think yeah. it's like more well thought out and more well executed and i think it's you can really sense the difference in like someone kind of lambasting the classical world versus trying to prove themselves in it. Right. It's like a spite album versus an assimilation album or something like, you know, but it, it, and it is just better when you, when it's like just he's vulnerable yeah. he, he's yeah. not vulnerable on the academy exactly. in peril what he's doing there is kind of showing i'm this guy who can exactly. do this stuff but i don't I respect it right now yeah. in this in the way that you do i and choose not to yeah, I, pr- I would prefer not to yeah. <laughs> but what we have with words for the dying is a really interesting act of showing his reverence you know to dylan thomas which we barely have talked about but it 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 is a, an act of respect and reverence to a a poet, the poet of his home country, who also has this like specific experience of being a popular mm-hmm. poet, like basically the a rock star poet yeah. from Wales, and he's there with Brian Eno, who's kind of this also sort of a, a one off like unicorn of in many worlds at once comfortable within rock music and classical and anything else it's also successful just in the fact that it sort of seems to have successfully like given him that confidence and support creatively to to feel like at ease and having pulled off this like this vulnerable thing of you know is this very personal poetry to him the these ideas about is where he comes from and his roots as a classical musician and all of that, it, it melds together. I think that's an interesting connection between like, I mean, Kale being caught between two places and Thomas also being caught between Mm. being an artist, you know, yeah. Being classical and being rock, being popular and being a, in, in his own words, Dylan Thomas says, one, I'm a Welshman, two, I'm a drunkard, three, I'm a lover of the human race, especially of women. Amen, brother. At one point, maybe Kale could have said those same words, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I don't think he'd ever say he's a lover of the human race. That doesn't 
really track in his vocabulary. A lover of squash. A lover of women. Mostly squash. <laughs> squash. <laughs> it's not a record that I like have a whole lot to say about, you know, like song by song, moment by moment, um, you know, uh, because there really are no you know, minus one, uh, at least the last track, Soul of Cameron Miranda, there aren't any like original John lyrical compositions on here. Well, um, we should talk about not, that. Absolutely. We, can, we, we can't, can't talk about it. it, yeah. But in general, it's a, um, it's just really exciting to see him come back after so long away. He feels burned out on rock songs. He's done with this whole world and this style of writing music. He writes songs and then by the time he gets into the studio to record them, he's bored with them and doesn't even want to bother with them. And uh, and this, I think, record really kind of sets the sage for the second half of his career because he's about to enter just a super productive, interesting era in his um, in his LP output between this Drella, uh, Fragments, um, Last Day on Earth, uh, Walking on Locusts, Wrong Way, Wrong up. Way Up. Exactly. That's a fantastic like five or six albums, however many that is in like a five year span. It's true. Yeah. Um, and then he just keeps it going from there, you know. It's inspiring to see. Oh, yeah. The one song that you just mentioned that was that is an original composition, I think it's just interesting to note. The Soul of Carmen Miranda is a... a con- there's a connection that uh, I think I made that the All Music Review didn't get. Hmm. Um, in, in that review, I think it says, like, well, he's singing about Carmen Miranda and he's singing about the Falklands War. What the heck is he talking about? I will say, before you read whatever you're about to read, that's how it comes off to me. Like, I'm like, oh, he just stuck on a, well, this other song. <laughs> I, uh, I can't tell you exactly what the connection in John Cale's mind was here, but Carmen Miranda starred in Down Argentine Way. Mama, mama. And as anybody who knows anything about the Falklands War knows, it was a conflict uh, involving Argentina at the uh, the center. Uh, so I think that there's actually a connection between this song and something like Antarctica Starts Here, this kind of poetic um, coda to the album, which works as a as a way to kind of tie some themes together and interestingly sounds t- completely different stylistically from the rest of the album and kind of telegraphs where he'll go with wrong way up and so many other things in his career after yeah for me the most interesting thing about the soul of carmen miranda is how much it points towards wrong way up musically like and sound wise it sounds it could have been on Wrong Way Up. It yeah. fits on Wrong Way Up much more yeah. much more so than uh, it does here, that's for sure. The other thing it reminded me of, Ian, is um, the the last song on uh, Chloe in the Next 20th Century being uh, by Father John Missy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this t- completely different stylistic uh, move that... Sounds totally different. Lyrics are totally different. Yeah. The Next 20th Century. Yeah. It's, the whole record sounds antiquated, at least you know instrumentally, and then there's this kind of contemporary floaty piece, uh, vibey, synthy thing. Yeah, yeah, that that seems to comment upon it, the rest of the record. That makes sense. And I think that it does have a a meaningful inclusion. It is a meaningful inclusion that I'm sure uh, scholars of the Falklands War and 
fans of Carmen Miranda would <laughs> are going to have a field day with. Carmen Miranda should be noted Brazilian. Yes, yes, no, but she's no, she stars in the film. Yes, down yeah, yeah, Argentina, you're right. You're right about that. Which again makes me think of Antarctica Starts Here, which is you know about Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard. Sure, and they both seem to be about like the sublimation of events uh, in history with ones that are fictional in, in films and, and both involve like a central woman uh, figure. So that's my best shot at talking about why that's there. I will take it. I'd like to say musically about words for the dying, that there are a couple of moments that are, I think are completely titillating musically. Like there's, I think it's in, there was a savior or the interlude that follows, but like, all of the singing kind of ceases, and then there's a little accordion break. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it does this little arpeggiation, and then it kind of it kind of freestyles a bit. The drooping of roses that did not us go, death's only one, but never found. really struck me even before i saw the film as just a really beautiful moment where all of a sudden there's accordion a little bit before but all of a sudden there's just this accordion break and it's uh, pretty stunning i think and also looking at the liner notes on the record that seems to be the only musician not credited is the accordionist i don't know why no credit for the accordionist yeah but oh he's in the film, um, the conductor is trying to coach him through playing that part. And the accordionist is like trying to read it off the page. And he's like telling him, he's like, you can't read it. You have to just like improvise it kind of like based on the notes. And they have a lot of trouble with it. There's, you can see Kale getting frustrated with that. Um, also, there's some chords struck like at the beginning of, uh, God, I don't know. It's got to be. Yeah, maybe the second interlude or something, but it they sound this they start the little piece off and they sound very like Scott four or something. They're like slightly discordant. Now you're speaking Evan's language. I mean Scott Walker comes to mind, of course, too, when with this kind of material and Especially the inclusion of of poetry in ser- and sure. in service of I mean the the 
thing of the soul of Carmen Miranda. It's like, what's the one on on Tilt that's like about Che Guevara? Any of uh, yeah, his songs yeah. have. Yeah, he could easily period. have a song called "The Soul of Carmen Miranda." Yeah, I mean, there's there's Bish Bosh. They are totally brothers in p- obscure political references, couched in metaphysical trauma. Yeah, <laughs> that's their that's their As, thing. Yeah, I think Scott is just a lot like deeper, darker, and stickier. <laughs> yeah, well, he he just this is where Scott starts, and then he just yeah. goes from here. Yeah, those there's there's those moments. I I can't remember where that is, but it's like this. It kind of starts with like a doomy couple strikes of a chord maybe um, on wedding anniversary it's i mean that's doomy the children saying yeah uh, death the, strikes their death, house. death strikes the house death strikes the house death strikes the house death strikes the house death strikes the I don't know how well this music suits the poetry of Dylan Thomas, but it doesn't matter what I think about it because I think it's just John Cale's interpretation of it. Yeah. And well, really it's the combination of John and, and Brian Eno. Um, and I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with another, a new interpret, a, a different yeah, it interpretation. doesn't erase the original. You, you can poem. do infinite interpretations of, of this poetry. Um, just to bring things home, if I could, I I think that that ending where you see John take that moment and note, like, well, I'll, I'll take this L, like, of these people thinking I'm boring or treading water and, and, and try to use, I'll try to do something about it because I want to keep going. Uh, he changed directions, but not in his music. And maybe he should. Yeah, but now he has something to lose in life as well. Now he has a child. Those observations are uh, very uh, cogent. I mean, there's a very fair comment there about, um, well, maybe it's time to to regroup and make sure that you can do this for another another 20 years. And he's gone well beyond 20 years since then. Sure has. That's what this is all about, you know. This and. I can't help but think about on an album words for the dying about the the most famous dying person <laughs> like the the death of of uh, Dylan Thomas like kind of overshadows his life there's just something kind of beautiful and and triumphant about fellow Welshman John Cale uh doing this tribute and then moving forward with his own career mm-hmm. much like he will with songs for Drella Another ode to and work involving uh, a, a great guy. art, a, de- a great a artist who's dead. <laughs> yeah, I did see an interview with him that seemed like it was after the uh, this documentary was shot, and they kind of ask him about his how his performance live has changed, um, his live performance, and uh, he says he seems to have a different attitude where he's like. 
well, I don't need to, you know, you don't have to get up there and stand on your head and kill yourself on stage to ha- to convey an emotion or something. You know, you can do something else. John? Kale said this. Yeah. And I, I think it's around that same time. It seems after this documentary was made, but I'm not positive. Well, that shows that but, I think the growth of him realizing that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think he, he internalized that, but he wasn't like, oh, I need to like, yeah, he didn't like, uh, yeah, I think he listened to the, the critique, but he also thought about it and was like, well, yeah, another way to express myself is what I'm doing. And yeah, whatever. I don't yeah, know. yeah. He, he was already on the right track. Yeah. Also, we should mention that Do Not Go Gentle into That Good Night is, is the banger yeah, on it's, this album. it's great. I mean, come on. I was just going to read one last thing to close out on that note. Uh, from, I have here Dylan Thomas, His Life and Work, uh, a book on, on the man. Thomas died in New York in November 1953 while on a poetry recital tour. Shortly before his death, and aware of the seriousness of his condition, he spoke of his longing for Wales and home. He opened his eyes and calmly, sadly said, Tonight in my home the men have their arms around one another and they are singing. He was thinking of the traditional Welsh Saturday evening that he had depicted so often in his stories. Evenings at Brown's Hotel or at the Cross House Inn, a short walk from his sea-shaken home. Just before the final coma, in the terror and wretchedness of his illness and loneliness, turning on his bed, He woke to speak, sometimes in tears, of his wife, of the misery of his existence, and of his wish to die. I want to go to the Garden of Eden, he said, to die, to be there forever unconscious. A few days later, he died in exile. Two years before, he had written a poem for his dying father, a last cry addressed to a god as real and present as any enemy or friend. That cry still rings, And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And as the sun sets on us here, in Echo Park, don't forget to rage against the dying of the light. Joker man.